Hello and welcome to the Second Row Podcast. My name is Porrick Kelly and as always I'm joined by Ushin Collins. Hello Porrick. It's getting Christmassy around here. It is and it's great that we can still meet up in Dublin but over Christmas we're back to clean feeds and meeting in cars and all that type of crack. <laughs> yeah, our studio quality tends to dip as the quality of entertainment at Christmas goes up. <laughs> uh, we'll be back for Derby soon but in the meantime... Thank you to all of you who've liked, rated and subscribed. As you know, we're available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts and Spotify. So do sign up and subscribe to get all of the episodes straight to your device as soon as possible. And thanks for everyone who's already done that. It really is appreciated. It's another week of European rugby as round four of the Challenge and Champions Cups rolls around. But first, as always, we take a look at the news. It is, and you finally get your Mystic Meg moment. As you've been calling, kind of since the previews, Bernard Jackman has moved on from the Dragons. I am shocked! Shocked! Well, not that shocked. Yeah, and you were exactly as surprised as that. Yeah, like, not one bit. (laughs) (laughs) Like, we are two people with a competent level of rugby knowledge. We had no idea what that man was trying to do with that squad. Yeah, and I think he got a lot of leeway last year because, you know, relatively new in the gig and that squad needed a lot of work. But the Dragons, who are owned, as you know, by the WRU, put a lot of money into that squad over the summer and he's just not seen it pay dividends. He has Lions players and Welsh internationals on that squad and the performance levels aren't good enough. No. So, you know what? He's gone. And it'll be interesting to see whether they bring somebody in before the end of the season or whether it's a caretaker coach. Strange to see a coach drop out without a plan in place, but it is a very Dragon's way of approaching it. They just needed to solve one problem at a time instead of maybe thinking big picture. I can see a Welsh coach taking over somehow. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. Politics, politics, politics. Sean Edwards, who knows? (laughs) Um, another coach who's moving on from their role, Steve Hansen has announced that after Rugby World Cup 2019, he will be stepping down from the All Blacks job. Interesting, given that a lot of the chat was whether it was going to be Joe Schmidt taking his job, but it looks like Steve Hansen is going to get to retire on his own terms. Yeah, he's moving into a director of rugby role and the head coach slot is being left open. Maybe Warren Gatland? I mean, no. <laughs> Everybody in New Zealand hates him. I think it's probably going to come from one of the super rugby coaches. The smart money is probably on the likes of Scott Robertson, who's coaching the Crusaders at the moment. Really interesting. What would that do for Ronan O'Gara? Head coach of Crusaders? Potentially, or involved in the New Zealand setup. Oh, mm. then he goes back to Munster, you, you hope. <laughs> <laughs> Not all good news this weekend, though, and just a kind of a minute to... Reflect on Nicolas Chauvin, the young Stade Francais Academy player who died tragically during the week. Lovely from European rugby to see him recognised with a minute's applause at all the Challenge and Champions Cup games. Yes, yeah, that's an incredible touch and it shows that rugby fraternity that we've all been talking about for many years. And even Stad had free entry to a game via Ospreys on the weekend, which is incredible. Yeah, and these kind of things can happen, but terrible to see somebody die so young. Yeah, it's tragic, but we'll move on to the weekend's action. And we start, as always, in Pool 1 with Leinster v Bath. 42 points to 15. This wasn't exactly the narrow win that last week looked like. No, I say the, I won't say better conditions, but the better pitch anyway helped. It did. I don't think there was any good conditions to be had anywhere in Europe this weekend. Like, I've never in my life advocated for rugby to be a summer sport. But (laughs) after the last two weekends, maybe it should be. Yeah, you could imagine that this would be a little bit better if there was some sun. But you know what, Leinster certainly did up their performance and it was a lot more clinical than they've been in previous weeks, even though Bath did get out the gate with an early three points from the breakdown. It was a place that Bath got a lot of traction last week and they continued to disrupt this week, but Leinster just had that extra level and they struck back quickly. 
They did, and it was part of that more balanced Leinster back row. Obviously, we saw Jack Conan at eight. His ball carrying through the game was a huge threat for them. And like through that cross-field kick, he was just able to burst over the line. I think looking at it, even though they had Dan Levy playing that blindside role for a lot of the game and Van der Fleer, it wasn't until you got Ruddock on the pitch later on and you saw a six at six, an eight at eight, and a seven at seven. Leinster have a lot of talent in that back row. They probably just need to use it a little bit more sensibly sometimes. Yeah, like as as much as you want to get Van der Flyer and Levy on the pitch together, sometimes it just doesn't work. It kind of reminds me of the Steven Gerrard and Frank Lampard thing in England's soccer team. What? I don't understand what you're on about. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, I tell you what though, I, I just can't understand how Johnny Sexton running a loop continues to bamboozle defences after all of this time. Leinster scored another try off another loop. Mm-hmm. Can people just start smashing him when he's like running behind someone else? Take the penalty for hitting him early. <laughs> just do it. Yeah, I know. But even aside from called moves, Leinster were just more on the ball. Like You look at that try that James Lowe scored. He was the only player on the pitch alert to that quick tap and go option. Four Bath players had their backs to him when he tapped the ball. Shocking. And if he didn't go over, a Bath player was getting a yellow card for not being on the line when he tapped it. Yeah, and then they just wrapped up the try bonus point a couple of minutes later with Adam Byrne in the corner, who had a really good game compared to a couple of quiet performances. Yeah, he did. But this whole performance from Enzer looked like they needed last week to kind of go, oh, this is what it's like to play together again. Yeah, a lot of them are involved in the international setup, but getting back into those club patterns, really important. They they got a talking to at half time. Leo Cullen was a little quiet in the corner, which we've seen before, but Stuart Lancaster was... Not reading them the riot act, but I think he was trying to say, you know, go out there and really continue to do the damage in the second half. They didn't, though. No, the foot really did come off. And it's something that Leinster will be looking to improve going forward. Their foot came off the pedal in that second half, and they really should have put Bath to the sword. They could have had a couple more tries on the board, that's for sure. Don't get me wrong, this was a very accomplished performance, but similar to the Munster-Edinburgh game in the Pro 14 a couple of weeks ago, when a team is beaten by half-time, are you really that bothered to go out and smash them in the second half? And in the Champions Cup, better teams than Bath will make them pay. Like, if that was Saracens, they're going to score four tries in the second half. Racing 92 will definitely score tries in the second half. So you have to make sure you're putting teams to the sword for the full 80 minutes. Who knows how important points difference could be in terms of the standings as well for home quarters and semis. Exactly. But you know what, credit to Leinster. They certainly played up to the level that we expect of them and a much quicker start than usual. Getting that try bonus point by halftime is so demoralising for an opposition team. Yeah, it really is. And Wasps suffered the same fate when they travelled to Toulouse. Yeah, that was a fairly comprehensive battering. 42 points to 27. And even though they were going blow for blow through a lot of that first half, Toulouse just ramped it up a gear in the second and blew them away. I thought I was watching Super Rugby at one point. Like, just no one could defend. No one was interested in defending. (laughs) It was like, who will score more tries? And that will be how it was decided. But it does look like the final pool game between Toulouse and Leinster in the RDS will be a shootout for top spot. Looking like it, and potentially for a top spot among the seeds for the quarterfinals as well. Could be really interesting. Could be. A game that was obviously of importance to the Irish teams, but certainly a less satisfactory result. The visit of Munster to cast, and going down 13 points to 12 to the French side. Really, really frustrating result. This was a poor result, and a poor display. It was a really disrupted game, though. I have rarely seen a rugby game with that much needle in it, and... There was some filth from the cast players. Yeah, and I'd say Roy Cockett will need to get his uh, suit dry cleaned for the sighting commissioner. Uh, never never mind the suit. I think after sticking his hand into Chris Clutie's face, he better be pressing his Bermuda shorts. That guy's <laughs> going on a holiday. Yeah. 
But you know what? From Munster's perspective, regardless of the refereeing at the game, which was at least well communicated, there was a couple of areas the officials could have taken a firmer line, absolutely. But Munster left 12 points on the, on the kicking tee here. You and can't do that at this level. No, you can't. And the thing is, Carberry's kicking didn't cost Munster the match. It didn't help. His overall play at 10, he didn't control the game. And this is what he's gone to Munster to learn. He's learned a very valuable lesson here. And Ireland and Munster will be beneficiaries in the the future. Doesn't help right now. No, Andy Farrell will have been watching that game going, this is great stuff. You know, it's ideal for him as someone who's going to have Carberry at some point in his tenure as probably his first choice 10. And these are the games you need to know when a pack isn't getting forward momentum other than a couple of like really strong performances from David Kilcoyne and CJ Stander, really, really good carrying. But the pack as a whole wasn't physical enough, wasn't creating the go-forward ball. I was actually a little disappointed at how the game was captained, if you know what I mean. I would have expected Peter O'Mahony to be trying to work on Wayne Barnes over the course of that game, the same way that you see Rory Best in a referee's ear. Not to the point that you annoy him, but I think we would have benefited from a little bit better management of the breakdown of the physical exchanges in the game if we'd been in the ref's ear a bit more. A bit more of a chat always helps. And Rory Best, when he's on form, does that so well. It's an arm around the shoulder, having that little word walking by him. It's subtle, but O'Mahony doesn't do subtle. <laughs> he's, uh, he's kind of all nothing. Uh, moments of controversy both around a cast try that was scored and the Munster try that wasn't. So from a cast perspective, given that the question was try yes or no, I'm a little bit dubious that there is was this a camera Is this a camera 43 again that like no <laughs> one else saw? Because did he have x-ray glasses to see that ball touch the ground? The angle that I saw, you, pro- you did see the ball on the ground, but there was no ability to tell who was in control of it at that point. I thought potentially someone had got a hand in and ripped it out. So... Again, it's kind of one of those ones that without the TMO, it's definitely a try because the ball's gone over the line. But with the advent of technology, who knows? But then on the Munster try question where Andrew Conway went over, he definitely lost the ball forward, largely because he was slide tackled. And then someone dipped in on him on the ground right after he scored the try. Plus, Peter O'Mahony had just been suplexed halfway up the pitch. (laughs) There were calls for that to be a red. And you can see why, because, you know, the neck head area was a bit grey. But sadly, for anyone watching and from a Munster perspective, building up offences in one goal doesn't actually add up to a red. So because it was a no-arms backflip doesn't mean it was automatically a red. It was all <laughs> no action. lift, tackle, and off the ball. So what, just yellow card three of them at random? <laughs> <laughs> you know, they don't all add up to being one red. I know. Now, it wasn't the only brainless bit of play, though. Like Niall Scannell, with a completely stupid yellow card, just dived in at the legs of a rolling mall. Stonewall yellow every day of the week and you expect smarter play from Scannell he's more experienced than that yeah Cast really got into the Munster head like the niggle in this game really disrupted Munster's flow and decision making like look even with the penalty he got before half time not taking that three was pretty much cost you the match well the thing is the only time we looked really composed and in control of the game was in that 10 minute sin bin period which we managed really well and ended up coming out of it 3-0 to the better but just weren't able to control the rest of the game like that. And you said earlier about Carberry, it's that kind of game management that you really need in these type of tight matches. Even if your scrum was very good, like on the main, up until the point Kilcoyne started to get tired and his technique let him down, he changed his bind and started giving away penalties. Yeah, he had that kind of bent elbow that keeps getting Dennis Buckley penalised at Connacht, actually. Yeah, and they're simple things for refs to pick up on. you got to paint a picture. 
It's a good point, but certainly in the first half, our scrum was really dominant, which as a Munster fan, given how poor it was in the first four games of the season or so, really, really rewarding. And there was some nice ball carrying from the likes of CJ and Killer, but also from the back, Sammy Arnold carried ball well, as did Mike Haley when the ball got out to him. Yeah, like you didn't use your backs nearly well enough or even just enough in general. I think there's a couple of important players. You think about that's a team that doesn't have Chris Farrell and doesn't have Jean Klein in it. Those are two big guys who give us serious carry potential and Jean Klein running there melting people off rocks. We really need that physicality. Like Holland is good and so is Byrne, but they're not that type of physical presence in the second row. No. And look, I think from a what to build on perspective, we do need to see us taking our chances, whether that's converting from goal kicks, but also just looking at what the right opportunity to take is and being smart about it, continuing to build points. And let's be honest, across that match, apart from that one piece of individual brilliance by Conway, he didn't look like scoring a try. No, but I guess the other result in this pool was good from our perspective as well. Exeter went away to Gloucester and won 29 points to 17, which means that even though all Munster got out of this game was a losing bonus point, we're still at the top of the pool with destiny completely in our own hands. Win the next two games against Gloucester and Exeter, we qualify top of the group. Just need to win one of them. You're relying on other favours then for the in the cast match but you still only need to win one technically let's go out and win two games because, <laughs> because the nice thing is even if we just get two four point wins we cannot be caught like I have been a Munster fan in far worse situations than this in December um, and still qualified from our pool so let's go forward with a bit of optimism I think in pool three then Glasgow hosted Leon insert weather joke here and won 21 points to 10 it was the worst conditions I've seen. Like There was hailstones. And it wasn't quite as obvious on the wide angle. It just looked like it was rain or sleet. But when you zoom in on any of the players, there's like hailstones bouncing off their head and shoulders for the entire game. Like, ouch. Apart from the fact that the pitch will tear ribbons off you as well, now you're getting peppered from above. The weather must have affected the crowd as well. Like, they're so quiet, and that's rare for a Glasgow crowd. Yeah, there was one moment when a kick was going over, and the commentary team were like, oh, the crowd will tell you that. Like, how? Sign language? Because there certainly wasn't any noise coming out of the stand. And it's not as if they didn't have much to cheer about. Like, some of their play was electric. You'd think Leon would have learnt from last week not to kick the ball loosely to Hastings in the backfield. He's such a dangerous runner, and when you put him together in a team with Hogg and Matawalu, like, those three are gems, and they combine so effectively for the first two Glasgow tries. His run through the full Leon team for the first <laughs> try was incredible. It was like it was a slalom skier. It's like he'd bet that he could outrun everybody to get the try. Then, like, literally, what, two phases later, and a hog kick through Matuelo goes, thank you very much. I will take free try, please. <laughs> Absolutely. His try scoring rate in the last couple of games is Stockdale-esque. He's on fire. Yeah, it really is good. And their second try was just as good. It was. Unfortunately, Glasgow couldn't kick on from that. After scoring two early tries, you would have put the house on them getting a bonus point, even in the conditions as they were. Yeah, they had plenty of time to eke out another couple of tries. But either the weather took hold <laughs> even more. The weather battered them down. <laughs> yeah, everyone wanted to be in the changing rooms. Even Callum Gibbons, when he was simbined with hot water bottles, looking like he was going to die of exposure. Oh my God, because he got binned just before half time. But even having like stood on the side of the pitch for like two minutes at the start of the second half, I was genuinely worried he was going to be frostbitten. It is easy to blame the weather for poor games, but it did take 60 minutes to get to 14 plus phases. 
It did, and I think Leon hadn't had a plus six phase attack until about five minutes previously. They really just weren't able to put anything together. Part of it was that Glasgow were disrupting very effectively, but it can be difficult to put anything together when your hands are blocks of ice. And anytime the ball went out to the Leon backs, you could just see that they hadn't touched the ball for 10 minutes at that stage and they were frozen. But look, Harley made a difference when he came on. He did. He's a big physical player for them and he just offers something a little bit different to their starting pack. Made a huge difference in terms of the carry and was probably standing under the hand dryers in the bathroom to make sure he was defrosted before he came on. And it was a bit of a classic French finish as well. Leon's heads were totally gone out of the game and then a really careless elbow from Oosthuizen to Hedda Hastings meant it had to be red. Yeah, it just had to be. But it wasn't smart stuff from Glasgow. It was their own decision making and keeping the ball tight when going for that try bonus point. When in all fairness, their effectiveness and their brilliance comes from their backline. It does. And it's a key strength of this Glasgow side, even if they're not going to physically dominate it team their backline have that creative spark as we said like Hastings is electric but there's players all around him who can generate gaps that's what they should have been doing they should have been able to move the ball there even in nasty conditions because the Leon guys outside there are going to be frozen solid well they'd shown with the three previous tries they could do it the other point to note is that their discipline was really good in this game because it did get quite scrappy and Leon started to lose the heads but Glasgow were steady in that and apart from the Gibbons yellow card it was a good performance from them. It really was, but their fourth coach is going to be pissed. Their scrum was poor. It was, and there was a couple of instances where that big Leon pack were bullying Glasgow, but the most obvious place was in that scrum. They just weren't able to lock it out. And I'd say Hogg won't want to be um, watching back the replay for the Leon try anytime soon. Uh, like absolute nightmare for the fullback. You have to get hands on that ball, even or like ding it into touch. Just don't do the one thing you did, which was kind of floop it up in the air in and front give of the Leon player. Yeah, he will not be pleased on Monday. And another team who are going to have a tough video review on Monday morning is Cardiff against Saracens at home this time and going down 16 points to 26. And they were in this match for long periods. Well, they were ahead at half time again. And one of the really interesting things about the December games is that it's back to back. You're supposed to learn from them. And in the second fixture, if you're going to get caught out, at least let it be for something different. But the thing that caught out Cardiff has been the thing that's been catching them out all season. They have this incredible inability to play for 80 minutes. They don't seem to be able to put a full game's performance together. We saw it at the start of the season where they were like bottling the last 10 minutes of games. We've seen them go missing in and around half time on a couple of occasions. And really, this was just one half of good rugby and fading for the second half against, it has to be said, a Saracens team that was missing a number of its frontline players. No Billy Vinopola, no Itoji, no Isique, no Liam Williams and no Wigglesworth until late in the second half. That's the spine of that team in a lot of ways. Yeah, but it was Saracens who did get the first try. A lazy run around the outside and under 19s should have made those tackles that Cardiff missed. They should have. And the really concerning thing isn't just that there was missed tackles. It's that the defensive pattern that they had was just so disorganised. They didn't look like they had defenders in the right places to make tackles, let alone guys falling off their man. And, you know, for much of the first half, Saracens were gettable. Farrell was having a bad day. He was. He was a little bit inaccurate. He missed a couple of kicks and just there was a few passes thrown that weren't exactly where he wanted. And you know what? Cardiff got a simple try off the back of a scrum. One out passing and a missed tackle from Saracens. That's you don't poor. see. It is, and it's something you don't see a lot from them. They're usually really consistent in there. Tell you what, their second was good, though. Oh, yeah, a lovely crossfield kick. And because Maitland was so worried about taking out the Cardiff player in the air, he just stood off them long enough for Cardiff to create a 3 round 2 overlap. 
it was partly that, but it was also the case that because they'd overloaded the wing without Saracen just watching who they were up against. But you know what? Still needed the passes to go to hand, and they did. Really, really nicely worked try. Interesting substitution then in the second half. Very much not like for like. Cardiff brought on Ollie Robinson for Samu Manoa, which you lose a very, very destructive ball carrier, but Robinson is so good at the breakdown. And when you consider that you've already got Josh Navidi and Nick Williams on the pitch at that point, Cardiff should have been able to slow that ball down and control the pace of the game. But they didn't. Yeah, but like for me, Cardiff just seemed to have golfers' yips. Some golfers can't pop. <laughs> Cardiff can't function in the 22. There's a bit of white line fever, all right. And I mean, you look at another example. They weren't on the ball in the 22, but they kicked it back. You have four players chasing down Owen Farrell, who's basically on his goal line, and they're unable to prevent him getting the ball away. And those yips continued when they were up a man, losing the 10-minute period 3-0. The basic hygiene factor is coming out ahead from a sin bin period. Coming out behind is a real embarrassment. Do you know what was really embarrassing? A winger getting sucked into a mall. I could see Welsh Twitter explode saying truck and trailer, obstruction, blocking. No, no, no. The winger let himself get yanked by the mall. It did look like the mall had broken away, which then obviously would have been accidental offside, crossing Cardiff Ball if the winger hadn't been standing too close to it and got caught with the trailing arm. Incredibly smart stuff by Saracens, but once again, it's this awareness that Cardiff don't have at times. Yeah, a couple of players from Cardiff who did stand up and were having a good game. Their back row performed well, I thought. Josh Navidi in particular looks yeah. back to his best. He's an incredible back row player. Like, Wales develop sevens, like Leinster do. <laughs> I'm still not convinced by Gareth Anscombe at 10. I think Cardiff are a better side when Anscombe is at 15 and Jared Evans is at 10. Having said that, I did think your man Dan Fish, who came in at fullback, had a good game. A try on his Champions Cup debut, even though he's been around for a while. Yeah, the Anscombe versus Evans conversation is going to go on for a long, long time. And until they sort that, I don't think Cardiff are really going to push on. Yeah, and I guess missing Thomas Williams at nine, who's been so important for them so far this year, doesn't help either. I think the biggest issue, though, is their decision-making and their ability to hold on to a lead. They just need to learn how to shut other teams out. They don't need to go into a shootout. They can just shut down a game. Like, it's okay. Now, that means their European adventure is pretty much over for this year. But a team who've got absolutely everything going their way from a European perspective is Ulster. They hosted Scarlets this week and beat them comprehensively, 30 points to 15. Can we just like replay last week's commentary because the game pretty much happened the same. But Scarlet's had lots of ball, couldn't create any kind of line breaks, Pacho went missing. This does feel a lot like last week's podcast. <laughs> <Deja vu. laughs> and again, you talk about how teams in the back-to-back fixtures in December need to learn from previous performances. Was Wayne Pivak on holidays this week? It was incredible. The first half wasn't stellar by any means. You know, it took... 30 minutes for the first score. But Ulster just always seemed to have enough. They did. Having said that, though, I do think Ulster should have been yellow carded just before half time. They weren't back 10 from a tap penalty. And like it or not, that's always refereed as if you make deliberate contact. And sometimes when you make accidental contact, you're going to get booked for impeding play that close to the line. I was amazed not to see it penalised. It really was a strange, strange decision by the refs. Or actually, strange non decision. <laughs> We talked last week about Scarlett's defensive pattern. It does look like they just leave one player in the backfield. I actually can't fathom how, after getting caught as badly as they did last week, they let that happen to them again. Billy Burns got man of the match here, largely because of how he pinned Scarlett's back. He was able to get the ball behind them and get their back line turned around whenever he wanted. And tries came for it, and that's why Billy Burns got the man of the match, because he looks like he orchestrated all of 
Ulster scores and well he kind of did it helps that Ulster's pack were getting good front football there was some monstrous performances Eric O'Sullivan was great again Marty Moore did some great dirty yards best actually front row club would be very happy for Ulster they will but the engine room was right behind them Treadwell was excellent and Henderson was everywhere he was immense there's always questions about Henderson when it comes to international time especially in Ireland this match proves why he's in that Irish squad on a consistent basis now. It's performances like that that got him into the Lions, you know. He's a top quality performer and he looked it today. Having said that, I thought Cooney was a little quiet and maybe it's just difficult second album stuff because he was so good for them last year. But since he took that injury and had that poor performance in an Ireland shirt against the USA, he doesn't seem to have been playing to his best. No, he doesn't. But there's plenty of time for him to regain form going forward because Ulster will need him firing on all cinders if they really want to make a dent in the Pro 14 and the Champions Cup. I guess it speaks to the quality within Ulster that when they do get that first choice 23 out, they are a very difficult side to take apart. They're good defensively. They've got good creativity. You look at the likes of Addison, Stockdale and Louis Ludic, who made a difference coming back in. They're a potent force. They really are. I said Dan McFarren would have a good impact on this team. I think he's an incredibly good coach. And between himself and Jared Payne defensively, they seem to be a really solid outfit now. And their only way is up. They do seem to be making a click. Another player who, for me, is demonstrating a kind of a jump up in class this year is Gareth Davies. Everybody has known Davies. I mean, he's a Welsh international. He's probably the starting Welsh nine at the moment. But he wouldn't exactly be in that jersey for the old cerebral brilliance. He he has some fairly stupid moments. But he didn't have them against Ulster. I, the rest of the team let him down. Yeah, he actually looks like he's starting to make better decisions. That intercept try that he got, and he nearly got another one earlier in the game. He's starting to read the game a lot better, rather than just always running or always looking for the break. That's going to be important at an international level, not just for the Scarlets. But I was gobsmacked at how little we saw from Reese Patchell. He's a shadow of himself at the moment. He really is. And Scarlet's suffer when Patchell doesn't play well. Yeah, it's the whole canary in a coal mine thing. Does Patchell look bad because the team are playing bad? Or are they playing badly because Patchell's not firing? For me, a lot of the good work that the Scarlets do is based off Patchell playing to his best. When he doesn't fire, Hadley Parks doesn't get the ball with enough space. Jonathan Davies has to come in looking for work and they're not able to generate the width that they can do. So for me, it's very much if Patchell's having a bad game, it reflects on the whole team around him. But remember, he was playing great rugby off broken field play. He was getting turnover ball off Byrne, Davies and Barkley on a consistent basis last season. That's it. Three of the best backer operators in Europe. And now he has really zero of them in this game Barkley and Byrne have obviously moved on to other clubs and Davies was injured again for this game that second string Scarlet's back row isn't able to generate the quick ball that they need at the breakdown and it looks like the whole team is on the back foot as a result of it and flipping to Ulster given the fact they were on the front foot so much I expect more from the halfback pairing to control that game that's their first choice 9 and 10 and they just still look a little bit green yeah, nearly. You can see it with Ireland. Like Johnny Sexton and Conor Murray know each other so well that it doesn't matter which one of them is controlling a game. But a lot of the time, either your nine or your ten is your dominant character. I think it was Cooney last year, and I think there's a little bit of a, whether it's a power struggle or just learning how each other plays. And particularly given that Racing got the away win at Leicester, 34 points to 11, Ulster are still in with a really good shot of that second place finish. Definitely still in their own hands. And moving on to Pool 5, the visit of Edinburgh to Newcastle and a 21 points to 8 win for the Scottish side. 
Unfortunately, it's just me for this one. Porrick's had to get on the road back to Galway. A real contrast to the other games this week, the conditions were a lot less apocalyptic and what you saw as a result of that was much better handling and a much faster paced game. Newcastle managed to score the first try, Edinburgh had a poor kick through and they didn't really have their defensive line set. They were set up to attack, they thought they'd get the ball back but no luck. But Edinburgh edged their way back into the game and went in at half time only two points behind. They came out really strong in the second half, Pergos with a really nice chip over the top and Johnston gets a try under the posts. Exactly the kind of moment of magic that you want in a game like this where it's so tightly contested. Newcastle were struggling at this stage to keep pace. They'd lost a couple of players inside the first 15 minutes as well as one just before kickoff and another at half time. Really working out of their reserves given they had a bit of an injury crisis last week and they've lost more players since then. Edinburgh had a chance to put the game to bed at about 55 minutes. They were camped on the Newcastle line but a little bit too impatient. They just threw the ball way too wide way too early and lost it. Never really at risk though. They managed to repel everything that Newcastle were throwing at them and scored one magic try towards the end of the game. Just off quick turnover ball and a couple of wide passes, Duhan van der Merwe put the boot down and outran three covering Newcastle defenders. Looking at Edinburgh's strengths, really nice speed of attack and lovely handling, obviously helped by the fact that the weather was much improved on what we've seen for the rest of the weekend. They were also really good in defence, knocking Newcastle back in the tackle, which is important in a game like this to set out that physical stall. However, they weren't getting the same kind of line breaks in the first half and they will have been concerned that they were able to be shut down. Although you could say a lot of that was down to Newcastle, having done their homework from last week's game. The other result in that pool saw Montpellier get a bonus point win against Toulon at home. 34 points to 23. Conditions were absolutely dreadful. Just another game in the weekend that was played on a manky, muddy pitch. Still, result for the home team, and that's what they'll have needed to keep them live in the competition. And back to Porik and our one game in the Challenge Cup. Uh, good result for Connacht. Yeah, they travelled to Perpignan and won 36 points to 21. A really good win for a relatively second string team. Yeah, a lot of change from last week. Did you just beat these guys in the sports ground and decide you didn't need the first team players for this week's game? I don't know. I think we saw Sale win so comprehensively and go, if we get a result here, we're still in it. So it was kind of a shot to nothing. And if we can get experience for young lads, all the better. I think defensively was probably where that disruption showed. Perpignan were able to separate out your 9, 10, 12, 13, who obviously haven't played together at all, if, if a lot. No, that was James Mitchell's second start for Connacht. It was Fitzgerald's second start for Connacht. Okay. Horwitz was at 12. It was <laughs> it was our 13's second start for Connacht. Okay, point made. <laughs> but you know what? All the more impressive that they got an away win and an away bonus point win in France, which particularly when you look at the result in this pool, Sale getting beaten at home by Bordeaux. This pool is wide open. All the tears I had running down my face last week thinking we're out of this pool and second, even second best runner-up was out the window. We can win this pool now. Potentially. And what's great about it is a lot of the players who have been so good for you finally got a rest. Like, I think Jack Carty will come back over the Christmas derbies, but at least he's had a break because that guy is playing so much rugby that I feel like he's just not fresh enough. No, and he was such a difference when he came on. I was listening to this on the radio, and he was taking the full minute 40 for his conversions. He was slowing this game down monumentally. That shows a little bit of composure, and that's kind of what's been missing in the last couple of weeks from him. So great that he's finally been able to take some time to recover and recuperate. When he fires, he's so important for you. And it helps when the pack are giving our 10s a good platform. Standouts from Saturday were Thornbury, O'Brien and Connolly, who got man the match. We got tries from there from the mall. Wasn't used enough. But for me, the issue from listening to it on the radio, we started slow in the first half and second half. So for me, a lot of that is an on-pitch leadership thing. 
And I think when you do bring your frontline players back in for the next run of games, that will help to shore that up in a big way. Definitely. The other results in the Challenge Cup then. In Pool 1, Claremont beat the Dragons 49 points to 24. My only question there is, how did Claremont concede 24 points to the Dragons <laughs> at home? That's a that's actually a really good result for, for Dragons, particularly given the panic that would have been around the team this week with Jackman's departure. Definitely. In Romania, it was Timosaurus Harrison's nil, Northampton nil, Snow 100. If you haven't seen the Northampton Saints Twitter account this week, get on it. There is some unbelievable scenes. This game was obviously cancelled due to being completely snowed off. And... It's going to be a little tricky given the volume of games in the Premiership to find a window to replay this. Oh, you know, it's going to be mad. In Pool 2, Worcester hosted Poe and won 23 points to 7. And Stade Francais beat Ospreys 12 points to 3. Not exactly a thriller, but it does give Stad something to build on. No Welsh team won this weekend in Europe. That's got to be concerning. It really is. In Pool 4, La Rochelle went down at home 13 points to 3 to Bristol. Big result for Pat Lamb's men. And Zebre absolutely destroyed NSI. 58 points to 14. That is an unbelievable result by any standard. The problem is no one knows how that group's really going to work until the very, very end because the fixtures are all out of whack. Yeah, th- this wasn't a double header group. There's some sort of weird sequencing thing because of NSI just being a little bit more uh, geographically challenging. <laughs> In Pool 5, French team versus French team. Home team wins. Ajan beat Grenoble 14 points to 10. In a reversal of last week's game. So points shared there across those two rounds. And Quinns beat Benetton 20 points to 9. Unfortunate, I would have liked to see the Italians win that. But Quinns are a quality side. Yeah, especially at home. The big issue is no highlights yet. Yeah, a little bit more news came to light this week. It looks like BT didn't actually buy the rights to the group stages of this. Only just highlights packages. Which begs the question, how are the governing body that runs European rugby able to let their two competitions proceed without having television coverage available? It's just really poor. Like, those rights are open for Sky to buy. And could you imagine if the Sky hype machine was behind the Challenge Cup? It would feel more important than the Champions Cup with BT Banter Brigade. As much as you got a bit tired of hearing overhyped games, you get a lot more energy around it. You get a lot more enthusiasm when you do have... The level of analysis the likes of Greenwood brings to it. Sky have some great pros and I love their rugby coverage. But Sky would buy advertising space on terrestrial TV to advertise matches. Yeah. When was the last time you saw a BT ad for rugby on RTE? Like as an Irish person as RTE. It's very insular and it's more the tone of it. I just, it doesn't really do it for me, the whole BT thing. I don't watch the halftime coverage. I don't watch the pre-match build-up. I'm straight into the rugby and half the time I wish I could mute the commentators. Speaking of which, I would hate to have been a Welsh fan listening to Scarlets versus Ulster. Royal Nugent and Stephen Ferris. How Irish could you get? Very balanced commentary there, I'm oh sure. Oh my yeah. God. But anyway, let's take a look at where the league tables are. Going to the Champions Cup first this week. Toulouse cruising out in front on 17 points. Leinster right behind them on 15. As you said, Porik, this is going to be a shootout for top spot in Pool 1. And it's a real good choice. It's in the RDS for Leinster. That does make a difference. You won't create the same atmosphere in the Aviva. Get them in the RDS. Get the noise going. In Pool 2, Munster are on top on 12 points. But only 4 points are between Munster at top and Exeter with 8. This pool is wide open. Having said that, from a Pro 14 point of view, Munster top with their destiny in their own hands. I will take that any day of the week. In Pool 3, we have two Pro 14 teams with very different fortunes. Glasgow on 14 points in second place, just four off Saracens. Cardiff on four points, just four off Leon at the bottom. Let's be honest, Cardiff are gone. Yeah. 
Glasgow in a really good position to get out of this pool now. They might not win it, but one of the best place runners up is definitely there for them. All they need is one win from either of their last two games and they get to 18 points. That's been enough in the past. Who knows? And here's hoping. Ulster riding high in pool four. 14 points puts them in a really good position for the run in. Like we said, a lot of opportunity for them coming back from a poor start. Scarlet's on two points, the lowest of any of the Pro 14 teams in the Champions Cup. And given they were semi-finalists last year, what a long fall. I hate to like really hammer home the point, but that back row loss is a huge loss. Without having compensated for it, either by replacing those players with an equal or better standard or changing how they play the game. Scary. Then in Pool 5, we have Edinburgh on top on 15 points, very much in control of that pool with three wins out of four and a nice four-point margin down to Montpellier. couple more results and that should see Edinburgh qualified. Newcastle at this stage are three points further behind Montpellier again and probably are a little bit out of reach of a qualification spot, which is a shame after their good start to the season. In the Challenge Cup in Pool 1, Claremont are running away with their pool on 20 points while Dragons aren't bottom. Well, I mean, yes, but if Timmy Soares-Saracens beat Northampton with a bonus point, who knows? Uh, <laughs> now, Claremont of the success story here, maximum points, four bonus point wins out of four. That pool is always going to go the way it's going to go, and I think the Dragons are probably out at this stage as well. In Pool 2, Ospreys doing a little bit better, but they would have wanted that win against Stad. They're still trying to chase down Worcester, who are two points ahead of them at the top of the pool. In Pool 3... Sale are top on 16 points and Connacht are right behind them on 13. That pool is wide open now between the two. So you guys have to travel to Bordeaux and get a result in France? On the final day. Mm, but next game is Sale in Galway. Sports ground is going to be hopping for that. Absolutely. In pool four, La Rochelle on 15 points. But after their big win this week, Zebra are just one behind them on 14 points. This is La Rochelle who were in the Champions Cup last year who were knocking over big teams and Zebra are hunting them down. I really hope they can get out of that group. It would be incredible. Fantastic stuff. And then in Pool 5, again, one point in the difference. Harlequins are top of the pool on 11, Benetton on 10. <laughs> and just like the Munster pool, the next two teams are on 9 and 9. There is two points separating top and bottom in Pool 5. Everyone in this pool has won two and lost two. It's mad. We'll have to see how that one goes. That's actually impossible to call at this stage. And usually by now we have a, a picture of what groups are doing. Definitely. Another time that we've got to make some calls. The second row, top performer and clown of the round. And Pork, you've picked our top performer this week. I have. And from the Ulster Scarlet match, I've picked Ian Henderson. He was robbed of man the match, in my in my opinion. And it's not a second row bias. Second row <laughs> bias, forward bias. You have all of the biases. <laughs> Two tries. He carried like a boss. He was hugely physical. He was showing that form, like we talked about, that put him into a Lions tour. He's also such a leader for that team. Like He's a talisman. He's very much a lead-by-example player while looking bored at the same time. <laughs> That's fair. You have our clown around, though. I do, and anybody who follows us on Twitter at the second row, you will have seen this already. Hugh Jones gets the ball, and he proceeds to pull off the move of all moves, the Carlos Spencer, the Johnny Sexton, the Brian O'Driscoll. The ball between the legs. The pop through the legs to precisely nobody. The touchline really, really thought that was a good pass. <laughs> yeah, this was one of these moments that every outside centre dreams of where you get to do the super flashy pass. And it had been a little bit slow, which is why he got the ball standing still. Now, let it be said, if the left winger was behind him, 
it was incredible. It was probably a try. <laughs> but unfortunately, a key component of a pass is that there is somebody there who can receive it. That's a well-earned recipient, but an honourable mention needs to go out for jerseys in Europe. Yeah, there was a bit of a weird one for anybody who tuned in to the Ulster Scarlets game on Friday night. Maybe you had a little bit of a moment as you tried to figure out why Ulster are playing the Scarlets. The clue is in the name, wearing their red jersey, while the Scarlets are wearing their white NASCAR monstrosity of an away kit. Who thought this was a good idea? You think that's bad? Connacht have been playing in a grey jersey with lime green numbers on the back. No one can figure out who is who unless you know them all with photographic memory. You can only spot Dara Leader because of his ginger hair. Everybody else is like, it could be anybody. <laughs> that's a prop. Why? Because he's twice as white as everyone else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's our second row top performer and clown of the round. Ian Henderson from the Ulster Scarlets game and Hugh Jones from Glasgow Leon. Worthy recipients, I think. Very much so. And we'll move on to next week and we're back to Pro 14 action and it's Interpro Series. Derby time, baby. <laughs> So, six games out of the potential seven next week are taking place. On Friday night, we have Ulster hosting Munster and Cardiff hosting the Dragons. Going to be good games. I, I don't like calling the Interpros in particular because I'm usually even more wrong than normal. Uh, you can call the comp one. If <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. On Saturday, though, Ospreys host Scarlets at three o'clock. Edinburgh hosts Glasgow at quarter past five. Leinster hosts Connacht at quarter to eight. Now, we have been critical in the past, but I have to say, that Saturday is nicely scheduled. For anyone not going to any of the matches, that is a TV legs up and happy days. It is. And then on Sunday, we have the Italian derby. Zebre versus Benetton. That should be a cracker as well. It really will. And if anyone's wondering, why aren't Southern Kings or Cheetahs playing? You know, it's called a South African summer. It's too hot. (laughs) (laughs) They'll be back on the 19th of January to play their derby. Yeah, they made the decision to schedule the South African derby in line with the final round of European pool fixtures. So we will preview and recap it along with those games. Definitely. And that's us for this episode. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back next week to talk about the Pro 14, as you know. We do love hearing from you. So check us out on facebook.com slash the second row or on Instagram and Twitter where we're at the second row to ND, not the word second. So until next time, take care. Goodbye. And thanks for listening. Bye bye.